0: The reading for today is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right. thank you, Nick. Morning Redemption. A little uh, behind-the-curtain stuff to get started here this morning. Um, I failed to do my sound check this morning, so Caleb, are we okay? Can I get the thumbs up? Okay, thank you. I guess you're a professional, aren't you? You can yell yes if you want to. (laughs) Come on, help me through this awkward moment, will you please? (laughs) Okay. So good morning. We are um, looking at Uh, the second half of Philippians chapter 1. So we're actually going to start at the last part of verse 18, if you want to open your Bibles there. And that's all, the only place we'll be there, uh, be this morning. So uh, if you're new here, we're glad that you are here. My name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church Arcadia. You heard um, uh, Allison talk about how we have nine different congregations, and we're partnering right now with Alhambra. Uh, We partner with Alhambra on a lot of different things. We are only Four, four and a half miles away from the Alhambra congregation, but our congregations are really quite different if you uh, just think about um, the socioeconomic status of each of those congregations. And so we love partnering with them uh, and helping them. So really consider um, what she talked about uh, this morning. Uh, I want to pray before we uh, get into this. Uh, and the reason um, I, I, I just, I, I felt Called by the Spirit that I need to pray before this, maybe it's because uh, Paul, even in this love letter that he writes to Philippian, to the f- church in Philippi, he is um, he is really confronting some very serious issues um, that we need to wrestle with. And so um, I, w- I want to be able to pray before we do that. Not that we don't need prayer other times, but I just felt especially uh, called to do that this morning. So let's pray, Lord God. Uh, We are grateful for who you are. We're thankful for that. We lift you up and we exalt you for who you are. We're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us and all that he continues to do and everything that he will do for us. The great uh, future hope that Josh talked about last week that we have uh, at his second coming God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who fills us even now. And and even as we use language like we invite the Holy Spirit to be here, um, we know the Holy Spirit is already here. The question is, are we welcoming the presence of the Holy Spirit? Are we turning toward the Holy Spirit? Are we orienting ourselves toward the Holy Spirit? Are we begging to be filled by your Holy Spirit? So help us to do that, and we pray that we would, and we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for your word and its truth, and God, that that we can find uh, the wisdom that you have for us in your words, that you have poured out uh, through all of the people that you've had write your word, and especially now through Paul. So God, help us to engage with uh, what we have today. Uh, Help us to be humble so that we might receive uh, correction and also encouragement from these words that we have here today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, arguably his favorite church. I would argue that it is his favorite church. Other people say maybe uh, Ephesus. But he's writing a letter. It's a, they call it an epistle, but it's, it's, a, it's a first century uh, uh, style letter. And one of the things that we need to kind of wrap our heads around, if you've been here since the beginning of the year, is that what we're looking at is not... A narrative piece of literature it's not narrative in its genre these and as a result it's going to affect how we approach the the text that we're covering and and how we talk about it and and so the Philippian messages will not be very much like the love walked among us messages that we did for the first 15 weeks or uh, will it be much like the Jonah messages because those were all more narrative Um, this is a letter and so it's more didactic and if you're wondering what we mean by didactic it it, it means this essentially what we're going to be doing every week and you got a lot of it last week from josh as well is there's instruction and then there's application instruction and then application paul never gives us information just to puff up our heads he gives us this information this teaching this instruction in order to transform our lives to look more like Jesus and to be counted worthy of the gospel. Now, in and of ourselves, we're not worthy of the gospel. Um, That's what makes the gospel so special, that Jesus in His grace and love specifically goes to the cross to die on our behalf, to pay for our sins and then gives that great gift to us that is imputed to us. His righteousness is imputed to us as, his, as our sin. He takes that on. That's just amazing. That's the gospel in a nutshell. And, and that, gives us, that gives us new life. But we didn't do anything to be worthy of that. W- the reason we're recipients of that is because that's God's character. So part of that then as we understand it, that's, that's, that's the grace that's given to us, but then, and that would be the instruction that we could tell you. That's what the gospel is. But, but then the application of that gospel is, look, now that God has given us this great gift, he's also, uh, he's also given us his character as well. And and that's what the filling of the Holy Spirit is. And we begin to see things. We're going to see this next week in chapter 2. Having the mind of Christ, we begin to see things from God's perspective. And we begin to say, okay, now we start to be transformed into looking more like Jesus and living a white life that is worthy of the gift that's been given to us. We don't live this life that's worthy of the gospel so that we receive the gospel. We have received it already. And now we get to live this life. So instruction, application, instruction, application. So this is really practical stuff, but we got to teach a little bit in the midst of it. So Paul is writing in prison. He's in prison, but he's in prison in Rome. He planted the church of Philippi several years earlier. And there's just great stories about that in the book of Acts. Um, But he's in prison in Rome, and the year is 61 AD. and and if you want to know more about what led to him being in prison in Rome, read the book of Acts, and specifically the last you know, two, three, four chapters, so Acts 26 through 28. That'll give you this, the story that leads to him uh, ending up in prison in Rome in the year 61. He was there for a year, a year and a half maybe. It was his first stint in prison. He's then released, and you'll hear him contemplate some of that in verses 18 through 26. He's released from prison, his first stint. He goes back out, continues to share his faith and evangelize and plant churches and do all that stuff, which we really don't have much recorded on that part of his life, but then we know he was rearrested again around 64, taken back to prison in Rome, and in 65, this time the Roman had, Romans had had it with him. They had had it with his evangelism, his faith, his, this um, uh, promoting Jesus as the true king. The Caesars weren't too happy about that, and so they execute him in, in the year 65, uh, and that's the end of it. So this is towards the end of, of Paul's life and towards the end of his ministry. Today we're going to look at two sections. You heard Nick read the section, second section, that's verses 27 through 30. That's essentially the, the, the thesis of his letter, stand firm in the gospel. Everything sort of points back to that, including that Christ hymn that we're going to look at next week, which is which is really the the centerpiece of the letter. This is the thesis, stand firm in the gospel. But before we get there, we're gonna look at the last part of verse 18, the last five words of verse 18 in English, um, all the way through 26, we we would call this Paul's dilemma. You ever had a dilemma in your life? Paul has this dilemma. And and each week also, one of the things I think I'm gonna try to do is, you heard Josh mention this last week, Ephesians, I mean, Philippians is kind of set up like there are these little sermonettes, these little sections that um, together they make the letter, but you can actually have eight or ten parts of the book of Philippians stand by itself just as a little sermon, as a little sermonette. And within each one of those little sections, there seems to be an iconic verse that most people who have been around church for any length of time have heard before. And, and so this week, our iconic verse is is that verse where Paul writes, and we, have, we didn't read it, it's what we're going to get into right now, where he says, um, to live is Christ, but to die is, you know, what? Gain. To live is Christ, but for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's, that's one of those iconic verses. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at verse uh, last part of 18 through 20. We're just going to go kind of piece by piece here. Paul writes, yes and i will rejoice remember paul did not write in verse and chapter divisions and so we have this break here because he is starting to talk about something else but there's that connector clause there yes and i will rejoice that looks back so we need to talk a little bit about that i will rejoice for i know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of jesus christ this will turn out for my deliverance now that's not here you go that's not human optimism That's his future hope of the gospel promise that everything's going to be okay, one way or the other. Okay? Paul is an optimist, but it's not human optimism. This is gospel hope that he's talking about here. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope, he's eagerly expecting that everything will be fine. One way or the other, I'm not really wired myself to have eager expectation. Maybe some of you kind of are kindred with me in that regard. I, I tend to be a glass half empty sort of a person. Anybody else like that? Okay, so so the gospel should be really helpful to people like me, because there should be an eager expectation, this future hope that Josh talked about last week. My eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So you can see he's saying everything's going to be fine no matter how it turns out. So that last part of verse 18, why is Paul rejoicing? He's rejoicing because he's in prison and yet the gospel is still being proclaimed and, and he's rejoicing that it's being proclaimed, whatever the motives are. Remember what Josh said last week. That, that there were some people who were proclaiming the gospel with, with really bad motives, but nevertheless, people were hearing about Jesus. I think that's a really good thing. Paul thinks that's a really good thing as well. And then verse 19, he says, This, what is this that he's talking about? This will turn out for my deliverance. What is the this? His imprisonment, his Persecution, his suffering, this major interruption to his life, his life circumstances. He's saying, all of this will actually turn out for my deliverance. And that word deliverance is the exact same word in the New Testament that we use for saved. Like, you need to be saved. When Jesus says you should be saved. Or or the word also means rescue, to be rescued from the situation you're in. The gospel rescues us from our division, our split from God, the fact that we are not reconciled to God. The gospel rescues us from that situation in life and reconciles us with God, delivers us to God, saves us from our situation. He uses the same word. And what he's doing is he's preparing to tell us, no matter what happens, I can't lose. Now, we like that. Right? We, we, we always want to be in this, that you can't lose situation, right? Don't you like can't lose situation? Oh, this is going to be great no matter what happens. I can't lose. Okay, Paul is saying he's in a can't lose situation. But why? Why? How will this rescue occur? He tells us right in those verses. So often we have questions about the Bible and we go off searching for the answer to the question in the Bible. And what we need to do is just Keep reading the text where, where that question came from because very often the answer is right there in the text. And right there in the text, he answers that question. He's going to be delivered by our prayers and by the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit and prayer rescues people. We need to understand, there's stuff we have to do. But the Holy Spirit and prayer, there is no human power Better or more significant than the filling of the Holy Spirit and prayer. We need to understand that. We have got to be better at remembering where our power, joy, and grace come from. God and each other. God and each other. I hear this all the time. I can be a Christian and not go to church. Not for very long. You actually need the difficulty and the joy of community. We need God, for sure. Got that. Check. But we also need community. We need faith community. As difficult as sometimes uh, that can be for some of us. But this is a hard message uh, in a world that teaches and rewards self-reliance and something called pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. Okay. So the question has been asked for, as far as I know, at least decades and probably centuries to that To that saying, well, you got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Here's the question. Well, what if you don't own any boots? What if you don't have any straps that you can grab onto in order to pull yourself up from? See, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the point of the gospel. Jesus not only gives us the boots and the straps, but then he's the one who pulls us up. He's the one who fills us. He's the one who saves and empowers us and sustains us. And oh by the way, if you do have the economic resources to have beautiful boots with straps, you still need Jesus to pull those straps up. That's the gospel. And that's not that's not an indication of weakness on your part or my part. It's an indication of God's love and strength on his part. We need to look at it that way. Okay? So important. And then verse 20 is a magnificent statement of faith by Paul. He, he says, no matter what God decides to do with me, to, whether I live and continue in ministry or he takes me home to Jesus right now, Jesus will be honored. And that seems to be all that Paul cares about. Whatever happens, Jesus will be honored. So look at the next four verses, 21 through 24. There's that verse. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I can't tell. I am hard pressed between these two situations. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I'm talking to a church there, okay? So l- let me tell you, so context is. So important, I've, you've heard me say before, I'm a word nerd, I love studying texts and, and meanings and things, but context is really important. Um, the, if you're in real estate, you've heard that, you know, even if you're not, you've heard that, you know, the, what's the most in three important things in real estate, location, 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 okay? The three most important things in biblical interpretation, context, context, context. You have to drive towards context. There's other things too, but this is important. Ancient orators, such as Paul, now he's, this is a written form of him speaking, but ancient orators, such as Paul, often contemplated their circumstances and their scenarios out loud. People would gather around and they would listen to people like Aristotle, sort of contemplate their situation, their life situation out loud. So Paul's doing that here in writing to the church at Philippi. He's working it out. He's contemplating it. I think it's helpful to understand Paul is not discouraged by any of this. Do you you sense a note of any discouragement in any of this at all? There's no discouragement there. He's, He's enthusiastic about this. He's sincerely working out his joyful concern for the church in the midst of this. And for us, in the midst of this suffering and these very tough verses, Paul is calling us He's saying, join me in my joy. I'm I'm inviting you into my joy here. Just a little personal note. uh, Many of you know one of our founding pastors, uh, Tom Schrader, passed away um, just a few months ago. uh, Well, it's beginning of January now, so it's half a year ago. Um, And I was very close to him. And uh, you you just need to know, I'm still processing through this. And so you're going to hear about Tom occasionally on Sunday mornings, because there's so many times I'm in scripture and it just triggers something about Tom, and this does. The last five or six years of Tom's life, these were his verses right here. To, to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, and he would contemplate out loud about how, like Paul, he would really rather just die and go and be with Christ. But, but here's why. Some of you know, the last 10 years of Tom's life were absolutely brutal when it came to physical suffering. Um, he, had to, he had to walk with and watch his first wife, Susan, die of inflammatory breast cancer. Very difficult. Um, and then uh, he had, and that aged him. Just care, being, being Susan's primary caregiver aged him tremendously. People would comment on that. Um, and then he had quadruple bypass heart surgery. That took him a year to recover from that. As soon as he recovered from that, he had cancer, and he had to have an operation for that. Then they found out he had lupus. So he's got lupus. And he has all these respiratory problems. It was just one thing after, after another. another. And, and here's what you need to know. When Tom would say, it would be far better for me to die and go be with Christ, he was not referencing all of his physical suffering. He was referencing the fact, here you go, that he was tired of his own sin. He just, he longed for God, for Jesus, and for the righteousness of Christ so much. And he knew he had it. He knows that when God the Father looked at him, he saw Christ and he saw the righteousness of Christ. He didn't see any flaw there. but he was still living in this temporal world. And he still had his flesh in the battle with the flesh, just like you and just like me. And he was just tired of his own sin. And, and at his, he would contemplate that. He would contemplate that with joy and concern for the church, just like Paul did. It wasn't really this personal thing. It was more like, and yet I know I'm not quite ready. And yet I know I'm not quite ready because I know I'm still supposed to teach. I'm still, supposed, I'm still called to proclaim the gospel. And he did for several more years. We would have liked more, many of us, but, he, but God gave him many more years than many other people would have gotten. So these are like Schrader's verses here. So one way to summarize verse, verses 21 through 24 would be to say this. The world is important, but it's not ultimate. It's a reminder that we are not ultimately citizens of this world, but of heaven. Later on, Paul even says in chapter 3 of Philippians, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Praise God for that. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. First Peter uh, makes a similar type of reference in, in chapter 2 of his first letter, uh, Peter's first letter, where he writes, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, you've entered this new, um, this new kingdom, this new, this new city of citizenship that is th- where Jesus is king. So in verse 21, he says, to die is gain. And that is, that's quite a statement, isn't it? I mean, you're reading along the first time, you go, wow. To die is gain. And that Greek word gain there um, is a financial word. It's like, it's like it, you profit by dying. That's, that's what he's saying. So why? One commentator writes this. I think this is helpful. Death allows an undistracted experience of Christ. Death allows an undistracted experience of Christ. Now, We are not called to expedite this death, ever. We are not called to expedite this death. But we are called to live in anticipation of this future hope and joy. That's the call in the midst of this, because that's what Paul was doing. He was living in this future, this expectation of this future hope and joy. But he says it's a tough decision, and it is, It is. He says he's hard-pressed between these two things. Hard-pressed, that word means seized and confined, unable to move without pain. Now, have you ever felt that way about a life decision or situation? You're seized and confined, and you're unable to go. No matter what you decide to do, it's going to bring pain somewhere. What, nobody? I don't see any. No, none of. Okay, I have. So, deal with it. All right. Those of you who have caffeine, would you please take a sip right now? That would be really helpful. Mm-hmm. And he says, "My desire is to depart." That word literally—that's a that's a, um, a a seafaring term. It literally means to pull up anchor permanently. So sailors would use this word "depart" when they were saying, You've "Got to pull up anchor and we're out of here." Okay. So my desire is to depart. Pull up anchor. And be with Christ, for that is far better. To die is gain. Now, I'm going to work through something here. You, you need caffeine here. I'm going to work through something here. You know, in the midst of this contemplation, you know how Paul, if you know, if you know the letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul asks this question, He says, what if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true? Just contemplate that. What if the resurrection of Jesus isn't true? I found that many people have answered that question with this answer. Well, I've still lived a great life of blessing thinking that Jesus and the resurrection were real. Yeah? Okay, I can get that. But also, I think there's at least in part, maybe even in whole, kind of trying to, again, dress up the genuine challenge of the Christian life. Trying to make the Christian life more palatable so that we don't look so foolish, okay? I don't think Paul would agree with that statement. Well, I still lived a great life of blessing thinking that Jesus and the resurrection were real. I don't think Paul would agree with that statement. Now, before I make my case, I want to talk about the other side of this, and I pray this doesn't get confusing, okay? There's a, a professor of economics at MIT named Jonathan Gruber. He's done a lot of research into Comparing the life of Christians versus the life of anybody else. Making life comparisons. And his conclusion in all of his research, and this is all peer-reviewed, pretty well-known, very significant research. His conclusion is that there are practical benefits of submitting to the Christian life. His research clearly demonstrates that fully devoted followers of Jesus, Christians, live a life of better physical health than the average person, live longer than the average lifespan in every context throughout the world. They make more money than the average person. They stay married, here you go, with satisfaction. (laughs) Stay married with satisfaction more often than other people do. They have way lower addiction rates than average and they have better overall psychological well-being. And here's the most amazing thing about his research. It's not, he says, this is not a correlation. Lots of research can can show correlations between things, but it doesn't address whether it's, uh, it's causal. He says, and this is causal. Become a Christian, and these are potentially some of the practical benefits that you will experience if you take seriously the teaching of the Bible. It's causal. So he says, the discipline and teaching of this Christian life can and does pay off. But here's what Paul is saying. But it's not easy. Paul would attest to the fact that it's not easy. There are benefits, but it's not easy. Here you go. I know, I know some of you hate Tom Brady. A couple of you really like him. I'm, I'm looking at one right now. So um, he's had a great, you can't deny, no matter how much you don't like him, you can't deny he's been incredible. Was that just really easy? See, he walking around going, man, it's easy to be an NFL quarterback and win six Super Bowls. That was easy. No, there was this, there's this focus and this discipline and this sacrifice and this struggle constantly that he has to go through to be the best that there ever was. And yes, I would say he's the best that ever was, but I don't, I'm not an expert on that. So there's another side to this Christian life And Paul says, it's hard. It's beautiful and glorious, but it's also hard. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, if this resurrection thing, if the gospel isn't true, he says what? We, Christians, are to be pitied above everyone else. Pitied. Pitied. Why? Josh started us on it last week. Because the Christian life is one of sacrifice and engagement with the reality of suffering. If Jesus and his resurrection aren't real, why wouldn't we live as hedonists? I'm serious. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Now, it's not that there aren't blessings to the Christian life. We just talked about that. It's not that we we don't see God working and it's amazing when we get to see it and recognize it. But even the Bible tells us repeatedly, this life is hard. Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you are going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. But that really isn't going to come to full fruition until he comes again. Peter writes about this. Chapter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He says, because you are a Christian, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Future hope. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This is why we're called into this life and, not, and we don't choose it. We're called into this life. Who would simply choose this? You know? This is why so many places don't teach the reality of Scripture. It's all cupcakes and muffins. But it's not. It's not. But, but there is an incredible reward that outweighs all temporary glory here on earth. We see Paul say that that not only here in verse 23, but also he says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he writes, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. When he says, so we do not lose heart, that's another way of saying we have hope. We have hope. And then the last two verses of this first section, 25 and 26, convinced of this, Paul writes, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause for glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So here's Paul saying, I don't know for sure if the Roman government is going to let me know, but... I feel like the Spirit is telling me that I'm going to get out and I'm going to get to spend some more time with you one more time. Okay? And this is more than just a passing comment and probably way more interesting than we realize, these two little verses here. And again, context. Uh, ancient thinkers such as Paul often spoke of life progress in terms of moral and intellectual growth. Life progress is measured in terms of moral and intellectual growth. I don't see us embracing much of that in our world today. And that's a mistake. It seems our world today, in our world today, we are much too willing to sacrifice morality, wisdom, and common sense for what feels right in the moment. That's our world that we live in today. Uh, This is what the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls the fallacy of trusting emotional reasoning. The fallacy of trusting emotional reasoning. This is from his book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Emotional reasoning, allowing your feelings to oppress your reason, is among the most common of all cognitive distortions. A cognitive distortion is a mental mistake that humans make. Most people would be happier and more effective if they did less of it. And then that last paragraph. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So this is the thesis of the letter, letter, live in a manner worthy of the great gift that you've been given, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this is, in a sense, the law of the gospel, how we're supposed to respond to God saving us, the law of the gospel. And the law of the gospel is written about in many other places, of course. And, and really, the law of the gospel is, is actually not a law. It's more of a principle. Okay? In the gospel, we do not necessarily need a list of do's and don'ts. We don't need an actual written law necessarily. Rather, by the filling of the Holy Spirit and the knowledge of God and His Word, we know to do that which is worthy. We do know that. Christianity has this label and this reputation by a lot of people outside of the church that um, Christianity is all about what you aren't allowed to do. It's all about the don'ts. So what can't you do? What can't you do? Okay? It's like a diet. What can't you eat? (laughs) Everybody wants to describe a diet by what you can't eat rather than what you get to eat. Okay? So that's the way a lot of people describe Christianity. Well, Christianity is just about what you can't do. Okay? Restrictions. That's partly true, I admit it. That's one aspect of it. The Bible teaches us that there are some things that we should not do because it would be better for us if we didn't. But the reason not to do those things is never, 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 never simply because there's a law against it. No. The gospel is not kill joy, but turn to joy. What the gospel is telling us is turn away from these things so that you can turn toward the good things. Love, grace, mercy, empathy, justice, service. Pragmatically, it is a far more challenging life. You'll get no argument from me there. In fact, I just argued for the fact that that's true. But the life of the gospel holds something so much bigger and beyond us that makes it worth it. And that's Paul's argument here. It's hard, but there's a reward, and it's worth it. The goal isn't to just stop sinning. It's to live a life worthy of and glorifying to the gospel. So one of the things that Paul makes clear in this paragraph is that there is or should be an inviable co- co- connection between believing the gospel and living the gospel. That if you believe it, there should be some transformation in your life. It's going to be incremental, by the way. Let me just make sure that you understand that. Gospel transformation in this temporal world is going to be incremental. If you're an extraordinarily mature Christian and you've got this all figured out, all one of you here, okay, don't be impatient with young Christians and their transformation because it's incremental. But there should be transformation. Jackie has seen in, in the 32 years that I've been a Christian and the almost 32 years that we've been married, she has seen incremental transformation transformation, sometimes slower than she had hoped, but incremental nevertheless, okay? So there's a connection between faith and practice, between intellectual understanding and application. Now, why is it important to have this, what I'd call, lived belief? Well, there's four reasons. Number one, it glorifies God, and anything that glorifies God is good. Uh, number two, it demonstrates that you really believe it. It's, it's fruit, you're bearing fruit Somebody tells you, um, oh, there's a stock, and it's selling for 60 right now, and, and I happen to know for a fact that in the next three months, it's going to go from $60 a share to $150 a share, okay? If you believe that, you're going to buy the stock. Do you, see the, do you see the connection between what you believe and your action? Okay, I'm sorry if tying the gospel to a financial transaction is a problem for you, but... Number three, it is a testimony of the truth, beauty, and power of the gospel to the rest of the world. And here's number four. It cuts way down on the accusation and indictments of Christian hypocrisy and inconsistency. And let me just personalize that last one for you. My greatest hindrance to the advancement of the gospel in my small world of influence has been my inconsistency and my hypocrisy. That's just true. So verse 27 he says we must stand firm in one Holy Spirit. That word stand firm means to dig in, to entrench yourself and to be prepared for the assault. Because Jesus says there's going to be an assault that comes. And and verse 27 also says that we are striving together. That Greek word translated striving together is the word that we get um, our English word athlete from. Athlete. So. Paul is using a sports illustration here. You're to strive like somebody who's training as an athlete, okay? But you're to strive together. In other words, this is a team sport. Striving together to win the Super Bowl, to win the NBA championship, to win the Stanley Cup, or to win the World Cup. That is my first and only soccer reference ever in a sermon. That's it. For all you soccer fans, you were here for it, okay? Okay? And there is certainly an emphasis on unity in the church in this paragraph, standing in one spirit and working side by side. It's not that we aren't different and diverse. We are. That's what makes us a body. But we have a a commonality and we have a unity in Jesus. We're all striving for the same thing. And I suspect as I read this letter that Paul is giving us a little preview for the other related reason that he's right, there's another little reason in here that he happens to be writing to the church in Philippi. There's a rift between two of the women leaders in the church. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I entreat Uyodia and I entreat Syntyche. Some people pronounce it Syntyche. I'm not sure which one it is. I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Apparently these two women, while striding side by side with others, they are in a little bit of conflict and animus with each other, and Paul's encouraging them to figure this out and get together. By the way, our two daughters, Shelby and Darby, are glad we did not name them Iodia and Syntyche, which was my desire to do but we have, to, we have to ask this question as well. Are, are, are you striving with anyone? Are you stri- Who are the people you're striving with? If you can't answer that right away, that's a problem. Who are you striving? And I'm not, you know, there's Dunbar's number and there's Jesus' 12 disciples, all that stuff. I'm not saying you need to be able to name a bunch of them, but you got to be able to name at least one, maybe two or three. Who are you striving with? Who are you in the trenches with? Or are you trying to do this solo? Christian faith is a team sport, y'all. Verse 28, he says, don't be frightened. Okay? And if you're not frightened, it'll be a sign to the others that maybe they should be curious about your faith. But it's also a sign of your salvation to not be frightened. And this word frightened, it's very important to understand. We, we, all, we all have, you know, a, you're, you're walking down Manhattan, somebody jumps out from, a, a Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, somebody jumps out from the alley, they're going to say, Ha! Ah! They're going to scare you, okay? That moment where you, we all have that, okay? We have the defibrillator back here if anybody needs it. We all have that, okay? What, what Paul is saying, though, the, the sense of this word is don't live in fear. Don't, conti- don't live continually in fear. That's what he's trying to say. We don't stay in that posture. Jesus' number one command in the New Testament, far and away, is do not be afraid. He says that more than 500 times in the Gospels. And Paul says it right here. This is a clear testimony to those who oppose us that our salvation, our rescue, is not from us, it's from God. This is not merely our human courage or wisdom or diligence at work here, but it's a power that is inexplicable apart from God and the Gospel. We cannot emphasize this enough. It's when that person walks up to you and finally says to you, there is something different about you. What is it? I'd like to know more about that. Verse 29, Paul says, this has been granted to us. That Greek word granted is is the Greek word charis, which we get grace from. It's the word grace. This has been a grace. This power is a grace that is given to us by God, we, We've been given the gospel without any merit or worthiness on our own, only because of the, character, the loving character of God. So now we're called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that can only happen by the power of the gospel. Verse 29 says that we are called to believe this, not only to believe this, but also to engage in this suffering. So that word believe is, is the same word throughout New, the New Testament that's also translated as um, faith, put trust in, And and it indicates that this is where our hope is supposed to be. And then he says, and you need to engage the suffering. We are called to engage this. Not create it for ourselves, but to engage it when it comes. Even embrace it. In in Acts chapter 5... Peter and James and John have been turning Jerusalem upside down by pr- proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, turning it upside down. The Roman authorities and the, and the Jews are absolutely fit to be tied, and they keep arresting them. And in Acts chapter 5, they had arrested them, and they were trying to decide what to do with these guys. They knew they couldn't keep them locked up, but they also wanted them to stop proclaiming the gospel. And so this is what it says in Acts chapter 5. When they, the religious ruling council in Jerusalem, had called in the apostles, they beat the apostles, Peter among them, and insisted they not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the beaten apostles left the presence of the council, here you go, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, to experience the suffering of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that G- the that Christ, that Christ is Jesus. And so we've already said this, but it bears repeating. Troubles are going to come in this life, and rather than being surprised by it, let's be prepared and also understand that it's a part of our life. We can't escape it. And in fact, it's part of our sanctification. It's part of our growth. So here you go. If you find this life hard, you're not crazy. You're not. There is no worldly utopia that we can ever hope for or work ourselves toward. It's only the second coming of Christ. And you're not crazy if you think this world is hard. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon said it this way, The road to sorrow has been well trodden. It is the regular sheep track to heaven, and all the flock of God have had to pass along. In verse 30, he says, Engage in this same conflict that I am in. That that word conflict, that Greek word conflict is the word that we get the English word agony from. Engage in the same agony. Do you think Paul is saying, this is really easy. He says, engage in the same agony. And it literally, again, it's a word that was used back then to describe the agony that an athlete experiences when training for, competing in, and winning a competition. Paul likes sports illustrations and metaphors. And so I would just submit to you today that it is biblical to talk about hockey. So reflecting on the gospel, this idea of living out the gospel, according to Paul, has at least these five components. Just from this little paragraph here. Stand firm, unity, striving, unafraid, and engaged. But specifically engaged in what? Engaged in that suffering. Okay. So one little Last little part of application. There's so much application we could do here. We could go another hour on that. So I'll just go another 45 minutes. But at any rate, um, I I was kidding, okay? Here's where I want to go. There seems to be a progression here in this paragraph from worthy to struggle to suffer. Do you see it? Worthy, struggle, suffer. The fact is, anything worthwhile, anything valuable, anything prized is worthy of struggle and suffering. Don't we just know that? Right? My marriage is worthy of struggle and suffering. Any struggling and suffering that I might engage or endure. More specifically, Jackie is worthy of any struggling or suffering. And I hope she feels the same way. Shelby, Darby, and Joy are worth any struggling and suffering. Your education is worth any struggling and suffering. Your athletic training is worth any struggling and suffering. Beating cancer is worthy of any struggling and suffering. We certainly understand this concept in all other life concepts, don't we? But we really don't like it in this spiritual context. We don't want it in this spiritual context. But Paul's argument here in both sections of this letter, both sections of this letter, is, is that... The sacrifice and the struggle are worth it. He argues that both... Look look at verses 18 through 26. That's the internal struggle and sacrifice. And verses 27 through 30 are the outward public corporate struggle and suffering of the church. So we have it individually and we have it corporately as well. And it's Jesus who's worth it. Jesus, the one who came knowing full well what he was getting himself into and did not count the glory of God as something to be grasped, but instead humbled himself and became obedient to death, which is what we're going to look at next week. That's the gospel. He came perfect as the perfect sacrifice for our sin, and then God raised him from the dead so that we might have eternal life. The struggle and sacrifice are worth it. To live is Christ. And here's what we need to understand. This is not a call to pursue suffering. Don't go out and try to become a martyr. Suffering is going to find you. Don't worry. If you're getting up every morning and th- thinking, eh, God, you know, I don't feel the suffering. You know, maybe I need to pray for suffering. Okay, it's going to find you. Don't worry. Just give it a little bit of time. It'll find you. Okay. So it's not a call to go out and pursue it, but rather it's a call to radical faith when that suffering and struggle do come. That's what Paul is calling us to here. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word and its truth. Um, there's going to be struggle anywhere we go. We might as well have a struggle with a goal, an end game, a glory, and a hope in mind. And that's what we have in the gospel. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we pray that we would, we would just beg the Holy Spirit to fill us every single day so that we could engage with this struggle and this life and that we would be your lights in a very, very dark world. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.